Well, good morning, and happy Reformation Day to you. I'm sure you children are very excited about tonight, dressing up as your favorite Reformation characters. You see some Luthers and Zwinglies and little Calvins. It's very, and pass out uh, little copies of Reformation documents. It's going to be an exciting, exciting night for you kids. I, I, I wish I was young again and could enjoy it. Well, uh, in all seriousness, happy, happy Reformation Day, and uh, just an encouragement to you this morning as you turn to Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. I hope you enjoy uh, today, and encourage you this week to, to vote if you've not done so already. Uh, this Tuesday, November 2nd, is uh, Election Day. I encourage you to uh, make your voice known. And of course, my encouragement to you uh, is to vote life this Tuesday. Do not assume that a candidate, because uh, he or she may have a certain letter or name next to their, their, uh, their uh, name on the ticket, that they support the principles of life. I believe that there is no greater issue facing our country than the issue of abortion. And I believe that we, as uh, those of us who are old enough to vote and have the ability to vote, I believe that we have uh, no greater uh, obligation than to support candidates who support life. And uh, I watched, uh, our family watched the movie Amazing Grace this, this last week, and I was reinvigorated. Uh, sometimes I can become very discouraged as I think about the condition of our country and the issue of, of uh, life. And I was reinvigorated watching the story of William Wilberforce and his struggle against slavery and his uncompromising uh, principles. And so I encourage you to research the candidates that are going to be on your ballot. You can go to eVoter, I believe it's eVoter.com, and type in your address and find out the candidates you're going to be voting for, and then research and ask, where do they stand on those issues that are most important in our country? And do not, do not let a person assume because they're a part of a party that they can count on your vote. That would be my encouragement to you this morning. Well, please uh, stand with me as we read uh, Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. We're continuing our study in the Gospel of Luke. We've been going through Luke chapter 7, asking the question, who is Jesus? And we conclude the seven, chapter 7 this morning with these very encouraging words of the writer Luke as he tells the story of the sinful woman whose sins are forgiven. Verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus, answering, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, and he answered, Say it, teacher. Verse 41, A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. 
You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. You may be seated. Let's pray as we begin looking at God's word more closely this morning. Father, we confess to you this morning that we have no standing before you on the basis of our own works. We recognize that we enter into relationship with you, with you solely on the basis of our faith in your son Jesus Christ because of his work on the cross. And we confess that and we joyfully confess that recognizing that our forgiveness by your Son allows us to, un- to enter into this relationship with you and glorify you and worship you. And I pray that as we turn our attention to this text, we would understand more fully what it looks like to worship you as forgiven sinners. We pray this in your Son, Jesus' name, for your glory. Amen. All of us have felt the sting of rejection. Rejection is a very painful but normal part of life. Every single person in here at some point, to some degree, has felt the sting of rejection. When I was in ninth grade, at the end of the school year, I was looking through my yearbook and I saw the, the different little things that people in my class had been writing uh, to encourage me. And as I came across uh, one section of the yearbook, this, this uh, young lady had written this note in my yearbook. She said, Daniel, I'm sorry I rejected you, and I hope that didn't hurt your feelings. Have a great summer. Keep in touch. See you next year. <laughs> and it did kind of hurt me. It primarily hurt because I had no idea that she had rejected me. And I thought about it, I remember, okay, I, okay a couple months ago, uh, some, maybe like some friends and I were doing something, and, and uh, she had, uh, I had asked if she wanted to, to do this as well, and, and she had said no, but I had no idea that, I thought she was just busy or something, I had no idea that she had rejected me personally, and it kind of hurt. I wanted to go up to her and say, excuse me, I am retroactively rejecting you. <laughs> but then I was afraid she would retroactively re-reject me, and I didn't know if I could handle that type of rejection. So I, I felt the sting of rejection, and I felt it in many cases, and many of you, all of you, have felt rejected to one degree or the other. Some of it's been very shallow rejection, but some of you, some of you have been rejected in a very profound way. Perhaps people whom you love very dearly and deeply and desire to have a relationship with you have looked at you and said, because of some aspect of who you are, maybe it's your looks, your personality, actions you've done, they've said, I I don't desire to be in a relationship with you, and you've become alienated from that person, and and it hurts very deeply. Rejection is a normal but a very painful part of life, and all of us have experienced it. That's what makes 
the truth that we're looking at this morning all the more remarkable. As we come to Scripture, what we find is this incredible truth. God never rejects the person who approaches him in faith. Any person who desires to be reconciled to God receives complete and full acceptance as they try to, as they approach him in faith, repentant faith. Every person who desires to be reconciled to God, he accepts and welcomes and loves. That is an incredible truth. You and I can be rejected by other people who are sinners like ourselves, and yet when we approach a majestic, holy God, he accepts us. Isaiah 55, we're going to return to this chapter at the end of our time together, but I want to read just two verses in Isaiah 55 for you as we begin this morning. Isaiah 55, verse 8, God says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. A God who exists on a completely different realm, in a completely different realm than we do, whose thoughts and ways are, are far above anything that we can fathom, who is completely holy, majestic, perfect, that God accepts us. We can, we can be confident of being reconciled to him on the basis of faith. That's an amazing truth. This morning as we're looking at Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50, we see why it is that God accepts those who desire to be reconciled to him. As we look at this passage, remember we're asking the question in Luke chapter 7, who is Jesus? And Luke, as he presents this incident from Jesus' life, is going to give us an amazing insight into why it is that any person who approaches Jesus in repentance can be assured of being reconciled to him. What I hope that you gain as we go through these verses is an understanding of why it is that God forgives you. And that as you gain an understanding of why it is that God forgives you, you grow in your love for Jesus Christ. And as you grow in your love for Jesus Christ, what I hope happens is that your worship of God becomes all the more glorious and full and God-exalting. That's kind of a modest goal for this morning, right? <laughs> What we're going to do is this. We're going to just talk through the story, the first part of, of things this morning. Just walk through the story together and look at these different characters and how they interact with one another. Then what we're going to do is we're going to look at, at four principles, four kind of applicational principles, and talk through how they relate to each of us here this morning. And you might be a little bit surprised about where we go as we talk about applying the truths in verses 36 through 50. I was a little surprised at where we're going as we're talking about verses 36 through 50. Well, let's, let's first talk through the story. And we're introduced to the characters in the first three verses, in verses 36, 37, and 38. Here's what happens. He says, One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And so the first character that we're introduced to is this Pharisee. This Pharisee, I believe, is much like many of the people we've seen in this chapter he desires to know something more about this Jesus whom he's heard about. Later, we're going to see that his Pharisee's name is, is Simon, 
And Simon the Pharisee desires to learn more about Jesus, and because he desires to learn more about Jesus, he invites him to come into his home and be an honored guest at his dinner table. Sometimes, as we talk about this story, we give this Pharisee a very hard time, and and certainly this Pharisee has some, some issues that he needs to address, but let's not be too hard on him. It seems that he has a genuine desire to understand who Jesus is more completely. And instead of assuming things about Jesus, he brings him into his home so that he can find out these things for himself. That's the first character in our story this morning, Simon the Pharisee, this person who desires to know more about Jesus. The second person in our story, obviously, is Jesus, and we're introduced to him in verse 36 as well. It says that he asked Jesus to eat with him, and Jesus comes into the Pharisee's house. Now, you need to understand a little bit about the type of dinner that Jesus is being invited to. This dinner would be a dinner in which all the guests were seated around a ta- or were uh, gathered around a table. Whenever just a family gathered around a table in first century Jewish life, they would be, be seated at this table. It'd be just a, a normal family meal. But at a special dinner occasion, what would happen is this, the, the dinner would be uh, set on the table, there'd be this, this table set up for dinner, rather, and a person who is the honored guest, would, would come into the room, they'd take off their sandals, and they would take their place at the table, and people at a, a more uh, special occasion would recline at table. And so Jesus would have come in, took his place, and he would have been kind of laid on his side, and his feet would have been out behind him, and his, you know, the front of him would have been around the table. At a special dinner that was held at a, a Pharisee's home, what would often happen is this, the honored guests, the invited guests, would take their place at the dinner table, as Jesus has just taken his, but the doors to the house would be left open. And that would allow other people who were in the community who weren't invited to the meal to come in and, and kind of take their place around the wall and kind of listen to the conversation that's taking place at the dinner table. Sometimes the poor would come in there as well, and they could, could beg for some of the food after the dinner. But what would happen is these people who were the invited guests would engage in conversation the pharisees would engage in conversations with the teachers and so forth and people who were part of the community who desired to listen to the conversation had the opportunity to do so and so in this situation simon has invited jesus jesus has come and taken his place at the table and people in the community are coming into the room and listening to what's taking place that brings us to the third character in the story doesn't it We have Simon the Pharisee, we have Jesus the teacher, and at the beginning of the story, outside of this room, Luke tells us there is a woman, verse 37, says, behold, a woman of the city, that is, she was part of this community, she is well known by the people who would be in this room, but she's not in the room at the beginning of the story, right? She's outside the room. Everyone in the room knows about her. It's probably a small community, but she's not in that room. And Luke tells us very discreetly that this woman is a sinner. A woman of the city who was a sinner. Very ambiguous title. He doesn't specify what types of sins that she had committed, although we can make some guesses, right? He says this woman who was in the city who was a sinner, heard that Jesus was at table with the Pharisee. 
perhaps what had happened is this, you know, the, the doors to the house had been opened, people had seen that Jesus was in there, and someone let this woman know, hey, at the Pharisee's house, Jesus is reclining at table. Luke doesn't tell us the backstory of this woman yet. We don't know what her relationship is to Jesus. We don't know what the deal is, but Luke tells us that she has an alabaster jar of ointment, of this perfume, and for some reason, we don't know what, she desires to give Jesus this perfume to anoint him with it. And so somehow, she finds out that Jesus is reclining at table, and uh, now remember, she's, a, she's recognized as a sinner. This is a Pharisee's house. She's outside this house. She has the courage to go into this home, into this Pharisee's house. Luke begins that verse that introduces the woman, behold, it's an interjection. This is a shocking event. This isn't a place that this woman would have been recognized and welcomed. She kind of intrudes like an alien into this environment. This woman comes into the room. Children are often uh, very emotional. It's kind of hard to control your emotions when you're a child, right? We had a, an incident just last night where several of our children were just, we don't know what happened, just uncontrollable emotions last night when I'm trying to go to bed, right? I, I don't know why, I don't, but they just, these precious children, they, it's like they uh, lack the ability sometimes to really be able to, to hold those emotions in some, and just weeping and crying and things like that. And you're, what's wrong? I don't know. But just, it's hard, right, as a child. We as adults, as we get older, learn how to mask our emotions a little bit better. But there are times in our life where something just gets through those stone walls of defense, right? And we have no no ability, it seems, to, to control those emotions that are that well up within us. I had a week, I had an incident just a few weeks ago. I, someone just just said something to me, and it reminded me of something else. And all of a sudden, uh, I'm crying. I'm like, "What? Where did this come from?" You know. This woman has this plan. Her plan is to walk into the room, take this precious jar of perfume and put it on Jesus's head. Something happens as she walks in that room and she begins to, to cry. And the crying gets worse and worse. It becomes less and less under control. And by the time, remember, Jesus is reclining at table. His feet would have been behind him. Luke tells us that she comes up behind him and the tears are just pouring down her face. And as she approaches Jesus, the, the tears are getting his feet wet. And she, she been, she's, she's kind of lost herself. She takes her hair down and she's trying to clean off his feet. And she begins to cry more and more. And as she's crying more and more, she's like, there's no way I'm getting to the head. And she takes the perfume and she begins to just anoint his feet. It's a beautiful picture that Luke paints us here. The verbs that he's using are, are, are verbs that describe a continuous action. She's crying, she's wiping, she's kissing, she's anointing his feet over and over and again, continuously engaged in this act. And now comes the tension in the story. That's the scene. Simon the Pharisee, Jesus the teacher, sinful woman, anointing, kissing, crying, wiping his feet. That's the picture. The tension in the story 
I believe, is how is Jesus going to react to this? What does Jesus, the righteous teacher, do when confronted with a sinful woman? And Luke doesn't tell us that right away. He first shows us the reaction of Simon, doesn't he? Look at your text, verse 39. We read this, Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, so first of all he puts this in the head of the Pharisee. The Pharisee sees, that word for sees means perceives, he makes a judgment about what's taking place. When the Pharisee sees, perceives what's happening, he sees the situation where there's uh, Jesus, this person, he's trying to figure out who he is. There's this sinful woman anointing and touching and kissing his feet. And the Pharisee sees this, and Luke takes this inside our head, uh, inside the Pharisee's head, and says, If this man were a prophet, if this man were a prophet, he wouldn't have known who... And what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Simon had invited Jesus to his house to figure out what type of person Jesus is. And, and, and Simon comes to this conclusion. By the way, I think we need to give Simon credit that he's, he's still asking the question. If it were true that this guy were a prophet, I, I was wondering, but, but I know if it were true that he were a prophet... He would know what's going on. And notice the words he uses to, de to describe the questions that Jesus should, should be asking. Who and what type of woman this is because she's a sinner. This action that the sinful woman is engaging in looked highly inappropriate in Simon's mind. He looks at what's taking place there between Jesus and the woman. He goes, that's, that's not appropriate. If I were Jesus, I'd say, have nothing to do with me. The act of even taking down one's hair was, was viewed as, as immodest. In fact, according to some Jewish traditions, a husband could divorce his wife if she took her hair down in public. So Simon looks at this scene and thinks, inappropriate, wrong. If he were a prophet, he would have nothing to do with this. Simon thinks he sees clearly. When I was in school one time, I was in a photojournalism class. And one of our assignments was to take a picture and, and begin to take all the compositional elements we learned about photography and describe what was taking place in the, in the picture. So I took this picture and I, I, I saw that the very center of the picture, there's this little brook going through the, uh, the, the, the frame and, and uh, talked about all the details. And I began to write about all that was going on in this picture and, and touched on all the compositional elements. And I, I turned it back into the teacher. I'm thinking, you know, I nailed this thing. I, I think I, you know... Photojournalism, here I come. National Geographic, I think I have a career here. The uh, teacher handed back my paper and, and just kind of wrote these words. Uh, that's not a brook, it's a stone path. I looked again at the picture. Well, sure enough, that isn't a brook. And thus ended my photojournalism career. You know, don't really have an eye for this. I noticed a lot of details about the picture, but, but I missed the main point. The Pharisee, as he looks at this picture of Jesus and the, the woman, he sees all the details, but he misses what's really going on here. He misses the big picture. And Jesus, because he is a prophet, understands Simon's lack of understanding, and he says this to Simon. He begins to tell him a parable. 
by the way, we're about to get into this section of the parables a little bit more as we go through the, the, uh, the Gospel of Luke. As you're studying parables, the, the stories of Jesus, one of the ways to determine what the main point of the parable is, is to look at the point that, that's shocking. At what point does Jesus say something that cuts against the grain of the culture? And as you identify that shocking point of the parable, you can often identify what the main point is. Jesus tells this parable to Simon. He knows what Simon's thinking. In fact, it's interesting. It says in verse 40, Jesus answering him. Simon hasn't said anything out loud, but Jesus answers him knowing what he's thinking. And he says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And Simon answers, say it, teacher. Perhaps there's a little bit of strain in in Simon's voice as he says this. But again, I believe that Simon has an honest desire to understand who Jesus is. Verse 41, Jesus tells the parable, begins to tell the parable. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they could not pay, here comes the shocking part, he canceled the debt of both. Okay, Simon, here's a story. There's a a moneylender, a person who loaned out money to people, and he loaned out money to two guys. One owes him 500 denarii, that is about 20 months worth of wages. The other owes him 50 denarii, that is about two months worth of labor. And they could not pay him back. That's not shocking. Something happened in their situations where they couldn't pay him back this money they owed him and the shocking part is he forgave them both he wiped it off there's nothing that they did to earn or deserve that forgiveness but for some reason this money lender absolves them you're free I mentioned today is reformation sunday this is the anniversary of the day that luther nailed the 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Chapel, the great truth that was, recon- that was uh, reaffirmed during the Reformation was that there is nothing that we must do to earn our salvation. That salvation is a, a free gift that God offers those who come to him in faith. This moneylender, there's nothing that the people who owe him money do, he forgives them. It's shocking. And then Jesus asks Simon the question, now, Simon, Which of these two people will love him more? Now, Simon is a good Pharisee. Pharisees are tricky guys. They know the ins and outs of the law, and sometimes they'd ask a question knowing that it would trap you. And Simon, it's kind of ironic, it's not a hard question. Which of the guys is going to love him more? Uh. But Simon's careful. He goes, well, I suppose... I may backtrack on this. I suppose the one who owed him the greater debt. And Jesus says, you've judged rightly. You've looked at this situation that I've just told you about, this parable, and you saw correctly. Now, (laughs) here comes the hard part. Jesus is going to apply that truth that Simon has just admitted to, and he's going to apply that truth the situation that Simon has just witnessed. Notice what Jesus says in verse 44. 
Then, turning towards the woman, again, the tension of the story is how is Jesus going to respond to this woman? We've seen Simon's reaction. We've seen Simon uh, being dealt with by Jesus. We still don't know what Jesus thinks about this. Verse 40, although we have a clue, right? Verse 44, he turns to the woman and he says to Simon, do you see this woman? Simon, we've already seen in the text that Simon saw, he perceived, Jesus uses a different word here. Do you just, can you observe what's taking place? Do you really see her? He says, now I'm going to draw a contrast between your actions and her actions. He says, when I came in, when I came in, when I entered your house, this is verse 44 still, you gave me no water for my feet, but she, but this woman, has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. There is no honor that Simon could have bestowed on Jesus that would have been too great. No honor that Simon could have bestowed on Jesus, and Jesus goes, whoa, 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 let's go easy here. It's just me, Jesus. There's, no, there's nothing. But Simon, ever the skeptical Pharisee, remember, he's the I suppose guy. He wants to see Jesus in action. He doesn't believe that he's a prophet yet. He's assessing Jesus. And so Jesus comes into his house, and he shows him, apparently, the bare minimum amount of courtesy not to just totally insult him. He doesn't wash his feet. He doesn't greet him with a kiss. He certainly doesn't anoint his head with oil. And yet this woman comes in, and everything that Simon could have did, done to show honor, she takes it a step further. She doesn't just wash his feet. She's washing them with her tears. She doesn't just uh, give him a, a greeting and a kiss, but she's kissing his feet. She doesn't just anoint his head. She's taking this precious perfume, not just oil, but perfume, and anointing his feet. Everything that Simon could have done as a good host, she excels him in. She excels him in the things he didn't do. Why? We still don't know the backstory, but look at what Jesus says next. I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loves much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. He clues us in. He, Jesus is also discreet. He clues us in into why she loves him so much. Her sins are forgiven, for she loves. Her sins are forgiven, for she loves much. Now, he's not saying, because she loved me a whole bunch, I forgave her sins. He's saying, because I forgave her sins, you see that she loves me very much. Her great love for me demonstrates that her sins have been forgiven. It's like saying this, uh, the children have been in this room eating cookies, for there are cookie crumbs all over the floor. The cookie crumbs reveal the presence of children eating cookies, or husbands. The presence of great love for Jesus reveals that sins have been forgiven. We still don't know the backstory, but apparently something like this happened. This woman heard Jesus teaching. She heard about the kingdom of God. She heard about this message of repentance. And this woman, whose sins were very many, realized for the first time, I have the potential of being reconciled to God. I can be reconciled and have a relationship with God. 
I need to have faith in Jesus, trust in him as the Messiah, and my sins can be dealt with. This overwhelming weight of separation from God can be done away with. It was an amazing truth to her, and she placed her faith in Jesus. How do we know that? Because her sins were forgiven, and as she came in that door and saw Jesus, she was overwhelmed with love for Christ, and she had no option but to bow at his feet and wash them and anoint them and kiss them because she who loves much has been forgiven much. Jesus tells her in verse 48, Your sins are forgiven. He comforts her. Your sins are forgiven. What you believe to be true is in fact true. The other guys at the table, whoa, 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 who is this? They're asking the same question that's been asked all throughout chapter 7. Who is this that can even forgive sins? And Jesus, again affirming that it's not her love that caused her sins to be forgiven, but her faith, verse 50 says to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. Go in peace. It's that peace that righteousness brings. There is no peace in continuing in sin. The peace that Jesus is talking about is the peace that comes from receiving God's forgiveness and following him through righteous conduct. I don't mind telling you I've really struggled with this text this week. Tuesday night, we had an elder meeting, and we kind of talked about this passage. I said, guys, there's, there's so many threads here. I, I don't know what to do with some of these things, and there's so many things we, we could talk about. I don't know what to do. And, uh, you know, generally in, in a week, as I prepare a sermon, by, by Wednesday night, I could probably preach it. Wednesday night, I, I probably could have said something this morning, but, uh, you know, it wouldn't, it, it, things just hadn't gelled that makes sense. Things didn't really gel for me with this text until about 10 o'clock last night. At 10 o'clock last night, I I realized what I was doing wrong with this passage. The principles we're going to talk about are are still the same principles. I I believe that the the, the principles are sound. They're, They're from the text. But here's what I was trying to do. Let me just cut to the chase. Here's what I was trying to do. I was trying to draw two sets of applications. One set of application, I I wanted everyone to understand, look, you can be reconciled to God, and and if you need to, I want you to to understand that no matter how great your sins are, come to the the feet of Jesus and receive forgiveness. And then, and and this is how this passage is often applied, I also wanted to help the the Simons in here. Hey, Simons, those of you who who don't need to be forgiven a lot, I want you to, understand that you can uh, accept other people, okay? And so we need to have a, a culture that's, that's more accepting, okay? You know what I was trying to do, and maybe some of you are a lot brighter than me and you realize right off the, the bat, boy, that's a really dumb way to go about this. I was trying to make nice Simons. I want you guys to be better Simons, okay? So whenever the sinful people come in our church, You're not as mean to them, okay? In other words, I want a bunch of people who don't love Jesus that much. Instead, what I I needed to be doing is thinking, how do we all get away from the table 
Stop being the Pharisee and get at Jesus' feet. <laughs> right? <laughs> How do we get away from the devil? I'm not Simon. I'm the sinful woman and fall at Jesus' feet in tears. I don't want a church full of people who love Jesus a little bit because they're Simon but are nice to the people who love him a lot. I want a church full of people. I want to be a person who loves Jesus much because I realize I've been forgiven much. Let's look at the principles here. And I believe these principles get deeper as we kind of peel away the, label, the, the layers. And by the way, as we, be, well, as we become the sinful woman and not Simon, be nice to have people take care of itself, right? <laughs> We're all just kind of crowding around the feet trying to get a space. We're not really worried about the sins of other people. The first principle is this. The first principle is this. Christ forgives sinners. <laughs> That's an obvious truth from this text. Christ forgives sinners. Jesus Christ is the person to whom a great debt is owed and who forgives that debt, not on the basis of any works that we do, but on the basis of simply acknowledging our need. I need to be forgiven. Okay, you're forgiven. Christ's forgiveness is unconditional in the sense that it, it requires no works on our part, Christ's forgiveness is lavish. That is, he, he lavishes this forgiveness on it. He's not miserly in his, for, in his forgiveness. He doesn't say, all right, I'm going to spot you 50 denarii, and you kind of work for the next 450. Jesus Christ lavishes forgiveness on sinners. His forgiveness is deep. It penetrates to the, the very core of our being. Barriers have been placed in this culture between, between the, the sinful people and, and the respectable people. But Jesus Christ is recognized. Remember what we saw last week at the end of verse 35, 34? Remember what they said. Jesus is a friend of tax collectors and sinners. These barriers that existed between the Pharisees and the sinful people, the, the reason that sinful people didn't feel comfortable walking into the homes of the Pharisees, Jesus obliterates. He obliterates them to such a degree that oftentimes those who are self-righteous look at Jesus' actions and say, well, he must be a sinner himself because his proximity toward with, with sinful people. But Jesus obliterates those barriers. And when sinful people have a desire to turn from that sin, they know exactly to whom they can turn, don't they? A person who's a sinful person in Jesus' world doesn't believe, knows that he's not one of the sinners, but recognizes that as they come to the realization that the path that they have been walking on is a path that leads to destruction, has no happiness in it, they recognize that they can turn from that path to Jesus and find forgiveness there. That's what we see as we see that Jesus is one who forgives sins. It's an important truth for us to understand. You know, uh, this, the problem with this sermon began very early on. It, it began last Sunday, okay? Last Sunday, right after preaching this, I went home and I was kind of thinking about some things, and I, I thought, I think I've dug myself into a, a preaching hole. I've been talking so much about repentance. I think this is, uh, I'm, I'm preaching next week about the sinful woman. Is that another repentance message? Am I? People are going to catch on. I mean, a lot of people sleep, but some people are really paying attention. 
Am I going to say the same thing next week that I said this week? And then I, I, I looked at the story again. I'm, no, 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 wait. Let me remember. <laughs> this story is about repentance, yes, but it's more about Jesus, right? We've talked a lot about the need for repentance and, and that, that stands, of course, but I think it's also important to communicate to whom they are repenting. <laughs> you ever read uh, The Boxcar Children? It's a, it's a series of stories, but the first one I think is just called The Boxcar Children. It's from written in the 1920s, 1930s. It's about a group of children, and these children have lost both their parents. Both their parents have died, and they've been told that they're going to stay with their grandfather, and they believe their grandfather to be this, this mean old man, and so they run away from home, and they stay in this boxcar, and one of the children in, in the forest, 1920s, they got away with things like that in stories back then. Uh, then the, the children, one of the children gets sick, Violet gets sick, one of the four children, so they, they take her to the home of the doctor. The doctor contacts their grandfather but warns the grandfather that the children think that he's mean and so he doesn't introduce this man to the children as their, as their grandfather but as, as Mr. Henry and the children begin to learn to love Mr. Henry there's a great line and it's, it's, it's written for very young children so the words are very simple but listen to what happens as this grandfather comes in and sees his sick granddaughter says the children loved him when he patted Violet's dark head and told her he was very sorry she had been sick. It's important for us to talk a lot about repentance and our need to turn to God. But sometimes our perception of who Christ is needs to be corrected as well. Christ forgives sinners. He loves to forgive them and welcome them in and be in relationship with them. And as we understand the character of Christ, the character of Christ who sees the sinful woman and rejoices in her presence and re rejoices in her worship of him, we understand more the character of God, the character of the God to whom we need to turn in repentance. And maybe some of us have a wrong understanding about the character of God and need to have that corrected this morning. That's a very obvious truth from the text. Christ forgives sinners. And sometimes we just stop there. Let's go a little deeper. The second principle we see in this text is this. Forgiven sinners love Christ. Forgiven sinners love Christ. The woman's response to forgiveness is love. She comes into that room and sees Jesus and is overwhelmed with love. She has that that alabaster flask of perfume and desires to, to give it to Jesus. It was perhaps even obtained through, through, through bad means, but she loves Christ. She's overwhelmed with this desire to love him. Point of application, as you think about this second principle, are you lackluster in your love for Christ? The presence of love shows that forgiveness has occurred. Perhaps your lack of love for Christ demonstrates that either you have not been forgiven of your sins and so feel no indebtedness to him, no, no joy in thinking about his forgiveness of you, or perhaps, best case scenario, you need to grow in your understanding of what Christ has done when he forgave you. Christ loves sinners, forgiven sinners love Christ. We go a, a step deeper, a level deeper, and we see this. 
love for Christ always manifests itself in profound, God-glorifying action. Love for Christ, forgiven sinners who love Christ, always manifest that love in profound, God-glorifying action. The woman, as she comes in the presence of Jesus, becomes oblivious to all around her. Her focus is on Christ, and she does things that, that other people don't understand. Love for Christ is not some secret that you can just kind of hide in a corner of your heart. I, I love Jesus in kind of an intellectual way. I like to think about Jesus, and I pray to him and read my Bible. Love for Christ manifests itself in profound, God-glorifying action. Christ forgives sinners. Forgiven sinners love Christ. And forgiven sinners have a love for Christ that must manifest itself in God-glorifying action. And again, if you have no God-glorifying action, that, that, no action that's being compelled by your love for Christ, ask, do I love Christ much? And if I don't love Christ much, perhaps I haven't been forgiven. That brings us to the last point. Number four, the fourth principle. Therefore, God's incredible forgiveness is designed to reveal God's magnificent glory. Why? Why would a perfect, righteous, holy God want me? Why would he want you? You know, other sinners, other people who aren't that attractive, other people who aren't that smart, other people who aren't that, that righteous reject you. You reject other people who aren't that bright, holy, righteous, beautiful, whatever. Why would God like us? We don't even like each other. The reason that this question bothers us, I think, is because deep down, at least deep down, we should know there's something fundamentally wrong about us. There isn't that much lovely about us in and of ourselves. There's nothing lovely about us in and of ourselves when compared to God. But here's what we can take great confidence in. God loves to forgive us and bring us into reconciled relationship with him because we who come to the recognition that we were forgiven much, that we were saved from our trespasses and sin, we were saved from, from walking like the rest of the world on a path that led to our destruction, those of us who have been so saved and so transformed are to be like this sinful woman on our hands and knees before holy God, honoring him, glorifying him, giving all that we are to him. Why doesn't God reject us? Because the forgiven sinner brings much glory to him. I don't want to create a church full of Simons who act nicer to sinners. I want us as a church to fall down before a holy, righteous God in worship. Let me close by reading Isaiah 55 again. Remember, I, I, ta I, I 
talked about verses 8 and 9 that talk about how God is, is far greater than us. His thoughts, his ways are all greater than us. If, you're, if you have a Bible, turn to Isaiah 55. And, and this is what I, this chapter of Isaiah 55, this is what I want to create within each of our souls this morning. And I want you to meditate upon this. Isaiah 55, this is what God says. Come, everyone who thirsts. If you don't have a thirst this morning, there's a problem. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, that is the sinner, none of us have any money, any, any standing before God. Come, he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for what is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Verse, verse 5, Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and the nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Verse 6, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. And then he goes on and talks about his great glory. Let's pray. Father, we want to come to you this morning. We recognize there is nothing we have within ourselves. We are the ones who must, must bow before you, asking for your grace and your forgiveness and your pardon. We want the, the bread that you offer, the bread of life, and we come to you this morning beseeching you for it. And Father, as we grow in our love for you, may our great love for you, as we recognize what you've done for us, manifest itself in God-exalting action we pray this for your glory in the name of your great son, Jesus Christ. Amen.